I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Hey folks, welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Today on the show, I have Dr. Javid Sukhera. He is the uh, interim chair of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry uh, in the Department of Psychiatry at Western University. He's also the current president of the Ontario Psychiatric Association, and he prefers just to be called Javid, as I, as I learned, not President Sukhera, uh, not Dr. Sukhera. Uh, and we had a, this was my first time meeting him in person, but I feel like I've known him for ages because he has such an active social media presence. I really recommend going on Twitter, especially, uh, and following him there. In addition to his work as a psychiatrist, uh, he's also an activist, identifies as an activist and an educator. And he does such a great job of that, of breaking down stigma uh, about mental health, not just not only as a biomedical issue, but also as a social one and as a psychological one. So we spend a lot of our time uh, talking about that. We we cover a lot of ground and uh, I had a lot of fun talking to him. So uh, I know you'll have a lot of fun listening. Here's my conversation with Dr. Javid Sukhera on So-Called Normal. Should I call you Dr. Sukhera? Should I call you President Sukhera? Please I... call me Javid. That okay. would be the most <laughs> appropriate thing to do. Got it. Okay. So, Javid, thank you so much for coming in. I've, I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time, and we've had a number of mental health professionals on the show so far, mixed with a number of not mental health professionals. I, I think that's for me, the most um, interesting way to have conversations about mental health is to include a a broad cross-section of people. Mm -hmm. And what strikes me about you and why I wanted to have you on is because you seem to pretty regularly reach outside of the narrow confines of medicine, right? Mm -hmm. And and what I mean by that is that it's not just all about diagnoses and DSMs uh, with you. So can you tell me more about uh, how you, and we'll dig deeper into this uh, as we go along, but Tell me more about your approach to psychiatry. What's your what's your philosophy for for how you practice medicine? So I think for me, psychiatry and medicine in general really and truly is a social science. Mm. The challenge is that most biomedical training environments uh, and biomedical paradigms at times come up in tension against this idea of social science. Right, sure. For me, I mean, I chose medicine because... I had experiences in life and had the opportunity to work in diverse global health settings. uh, And I truly began to appreciate how the context of an individual's existence informs uh, what happens to them and their health. Sure. But when I went through medical school, um, that was somewhat evident. And then in psychiatry training, it's almost like the idea that medicine is a social science was somewhat taboo. Sure. It's almost, it's unscientific, it seems like, to talk about it as a social science. Yeah, and I think that that's part of the challenge of psychiatry as a profession is that there's all sorts of attacks both outside of psychiatry and within psychiatry mm-hmm. that uh, make people within the profession feel delegitimized mm. or uh, stigmatized. Right. And a lot of mainstream culture has led to an overemphasis on a biomedical mm. or exclusively biophysiological way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems like that's a, um, I mean, the pendulum swings, I think, but it seems to have swung pretty hard toward biomedical model, in, especially in recent years, I've noticed. I don't know. Have you noticed that too? Yeah, I think I think it's been there for a while. Right. Um, 
I mean, we're certainly not in the age of Freud and Jung anymore, right? It's and and probably in a lot of ways for better, but also I think the fundamental neglect, I guess, of some of those core principles of psychotherapy and of understanding the human mind, nobody talks about that stuff anymore, it seems. Well, I think I would push back and not say nobody talks right, well, about sure, it. Well, right? sure, you talk about I it. I talk about it. I <laughs> think that nobody. I'm part of a, a, a pretty uh, big community right. of folks that are challenging right. existing paradigms right. and trying to get us back to the heart of what we do. Right. Um, the problem is that there's different ways of approaching um, problems, right? Mm. You can look at problems as, as fixable and take an interventionist approach. Mm-hmm. That if there's a problem and someone's suffering, there's someone who can help understand that suffering and offer a solution to that person's mm. problem. Mm-hmm. But part of being a psychotherapist, which we learn in psychiatry training, I think we've mm-hmm. talked about that before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And actually, I asked you very um, directly because uh, that's not something that that even still I'm not entirely familiar with is the level of psychotherapy training that a psychiatrist has. Yeah. So I actually went in to specialize in child and adolescent psychiatry and mm-hmm. had even more deeper training in psychotherapy. So when mm-hmm. you learn to be a psychotherapist, you actually actually have to unlearn that implicit interventionalist right. approach. You have to step back from the idea that you're working with someone who might have a lack and that you're there to help them with that deficit right. and say, actually, no, here are two human beings with their own uh, vulnerabilities that are trying to create a healing space together. Right. Which is which is for me so um, and maybe it's just because I'm, I've been exposed both professionally and repeatedly personally to, to the mental health care system mm-hmm. uh, that that seems so countercultural. Right. That that the whole system seems to be based on this largely patriarchal idea that you're broken and we're here to fix you because we're the experts. Right. Absolutely. And that has never helped me. <laughs> no, it doesn't really help most people. I think yeah. all of us have to pause and think about what we would rather do. Mm-hmm. I remember early in my training, we were working with physicians who work in emergency departments. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to use some of our research on stigma and implicit bias to help them appreciate that they're almost likely to avoid patients with mental illness mm. because they don't feel like they can fix them. Right. So we said to, to them, well, you know, it's all about engagement. So even if you're busy on a shift, mm-hmm. if you take 90 seconds to go to someone and say, hey, I'm Dr. So-and-so, and I'm sorry, I can't talk for long, mm-hmm. but I just wanted to make sure that you know that I'm here for the next however many hours mm-hmm. and your care is my responsibility that that could break that cycle that you're talking about. And ironically, some very well-intentioned colleagues would say things like, really, do you think that would make a difference? And my challenge to them was, well, what would you rather? Would you rather have someone who might be busy but is honest and open and is committed to helping you sort of um, alleviate your suffering or someone who just doesn't engage at all? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That was always I I remember distinctly because I've had the opportunity to go back through my history in the writing process so much. uh, And I remember on one hospitalization in particular when I was a teenager, uh, the regular attending psychiatrist was, a, a I guess, in, in my mind, a fairly classical, cold and aloof (laughs) physician who did his little 10 minute checks, adjusted the medication as needed, uh, either released me or didn't. But on that particular hospitalization, uh, he was out one day. I think I came in on a weekend and he didn't work weekends or something like that. Um, But another doctor came in, another psychiatrist came in who was filling in for him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Probably similar, very similar training, working in a similar culture in a small town uh, inpatient psychiatry unit. But he had that human approach. 
And he didn't do anything differently. He still checked my meds and still signed off on the forms. But I instantly felt more connected to that doctor than I ever did to the one that was supposed to be caring for me more regularly. I think that one doctor who actually took the time to ask me how I was doing um, forged a connection in those couple of minutes with me that showed me that connection was possible. Yeah. All all it takes is that micro moment of connection to break these cycles of disconnection. Especially when you're so desperate for connection. That's why you're there in the first place, right? Absolutely, right? And that's part of seeing uh, mental health as something more holistic that's inclusive of some of the neurophysiological illnesses, Mm -hmm. but on a continuum that appreciates issues like trauma Mm -hmm. uh, and appreciates that a lot of times seeing people who are suffering, there may be a disconnection or a need for connection that lies at the root of that suffering. So do you think it's um, it, coming back to that idea of the pendulum swinging hard to the to the biomedical model? Um, on the one hand, I, I get it that mental health awareness is uh, more popular now than it's ever been. I think I think we're almost at, at peak mental health awareness in, in terms of uh, the activities that are happening. And it's a good thing. Uh, the activities that are happening and the people who are finally opening up after all this long time about their struggle. But do you think it's helpful or harmful or neutral uh, when people say things like uh, mental illness is just like a broken leg or depression is just like cancer? Attempting to make them equal, I think, by making them the same. Do you think that's helpful? or? So the answer to that, like many questions, is it depends. <laughs> it depends. It depends. Sure. And I think I actually, in my research journey, have unpacked a little bit of that. Mm. What matters the most to how you frame arguments to reduce stigma is the context in which those arguments exist. Mm. So if you exist, for example, like when I first started my training, I was working with people in acute care hospitals. Mm-hmm. In that environment, the idea of someone being unfixable is part of what feeds stigma. Mm. So if you can help people see uh, uh, examples or counter stereotypes of recovery or how mm-hmm. connection can work or how connection can break the cycle, mm-hmm. then that example might resonate more. Mm. Um, In another setting, like public education campaigns, there may be nuances where that that same metaphor isn't as useful because everyone's going to see it through their own bias and their own lens. Right, right. I think uh, I've been thinking about that, those analogies or similes, I guess, uh, a lot because when the discussion around physician-assisted dying came up here in Canada, a law which we have but which excludes mental illness as a sole factor, um, some uh, an exclusion that I personally support, this idea came up a lot that, well, you know, depression, severe and persistent depression is just like cancer uh, and therefore is terminal. Well, no, that's actually not true because we have a lot more research. We have a lot more um, funding, a lot more support. There's a lot clearer of a treatment pathway. You know, there's still severe issues, of course, in all parts of the healthcare system. But somebody with severe and persistent depression has probably been screwed by the system so repeatedly uh, that they feel hopeless and broken and they haven't had the same opportunity for care. So I I actually feel like it can be harmful in those kinds of environments. Yeah, I agree. I think in general, psychiatric or mental illnesses are marginalized. Mm -hmm. They're poorly understood. They um, experience as a result of that marginalization outcomes for people who are suffering that aren't really aligned with how those problems work. Mm. The the analogy I use is, you know, if we had 
12 guys who got together and tried to construct a women's bathroom. <laughs> which, which is probably how most women's bathrooms are constructed. Right, right. So it probably wouldn't be exactly right. ideal. Right. And it's just the same that if you don't inform the design of health services or uh, medical treatment through the lens of, of mental illness or through the lens of things like trauma, right. then there are people who fall outside of the norm who are probably going to end up not finding what they need out of that right. service. My mother was a, a nurse for 30 years, uh, her entire professional career. And I remember her so many times coming home and saying she wishes that nurses designed hospitals because they're the ones who are walking. They're the ones who are using it, right? And yeah. and it always reminds me, too, of that. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, one of those memes that shows how environmental design works in, 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 in um, urban planning and how you have a sidewalk that comes at a 90-degree angle around a grass field. And then there's a pathway where people actually walk to get around that corner instead because it's faster. It makes more sense. It's easier. There are no obstructions. Right, yeah. and if we could define the, uh, d- design the or divine design the healthcare system like that, so there were fewer um, intentional barriers, or maybe even unintentional barriers to service, I think mm-hmm. it would work a lot better. Yeah, I mean that's part of why I lo- love working with young people, mm. and that's the bulk of the clinical population I work with, mm-hmm. because they call that crap out. Right, right, right. They will look at the way things are done and say, this doesn't work. Mm. I'm not going to call and wait on hold for an hour. Right. I can't call a doctor only between hours A, B, or X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And so they're challenging us to disrupt these paradigms and build a system that's built on um, appreciating that you might have, like a, a psychiatrist might have a certain skill set. Mm-hmm. But it's not like that psychiatrist has any more expertise right. than the person that they're working with. I mean, I'm, I'm inspired by the young people I work with every day because yeah. the way in which they live their lives, their experiences, and the world that they have to navigate is very different from me. Right. So in working together, this act of healing and um, therapy is about um, letting them kind of lead the way mm. and respecting their agency so that they're not put into a system or uh, a process that they don't actually get to drive. Yeah. And and do you think it's, you know, it, it takes a, you've been through medical school, obviously. So um, I'm fascinated by that process because it takes a very particular type, generally speaking, a very particular type of person uh, to be able to get into med school, period. Lots of people apply to med school who never get in. Very few get accepted, relatively speaking. Uh, and then you have to be a very particular type of person to actually be able to grind through uh, the the sometimes traumatic nature of of medical school. So I think that the, the doctors who come out on the other end aren't always representative of what real people are like. You know, they're very studious, often very type A. Um, they seem to be these fixers, these problem solvers, right? Um, what what? How do you think that impacts their care? Well, I think that your comments highlight Uh, several issues about uh, how we select and train physicians in general. Mm -hmm. It starts with the issue of admissions, which Mm. could be kind of its whole own podcast in terms of what we select for. Somebody really good at calculus must be good at connecting with patients. Yeah, and and things like the MCAT, right? (laughs) Right. I I remember uh, when there were conversations about changing the MCAT to include more behavioral and social science Mm. because that's the kind of competence that physicians should have. Sure. But then it's not just admission, it's also training environments. I watch as amazing, compassionate uh, medical students who are in years one and two sort of have that energy and seek Mm -hmm. um, role models. 
I watch them go through their clerkship year, their third year of medicine, where they just go through that gauntlet of every different rotation. Mm. And you can see a qualitative difference in them because the training environments in which they work, um, those environments actually uh, influence who they become sure. in a much more powerful and sustained way. Yeah, I remember once there was a student I had early, early in my career. I think they were one of my first medical students as a, as a faculty member. And I remember once I was on call and there was someone who was just really angry on the phone. Mm. And later I realized that it was that same student mm. that I had worked with, mm-hmm. which made me appreciate how um, they're very well-intentioned, compassionate people who might be going into medical training for that desire of connecting, right. but the existing environments and some of the training paradigms actually perpetuate that disconnection. So why don't people want to be psychiatrists? <laughs> and, you know, that's a bit of a loaded question, but if you look at the data, psychiatry is not the most popular uh, profession to go into. Yeah, so there's lots of literature on that. I think one of the big things I hear and read about is stigma against psychiatry. Mm. So if any student says that they might want to go into psychiatry, uh, they often hear very negative comments about sure. who psychiatrists are, what we do. Mm. Psychiatrists are stereotyped in society. Um, people don't really understand uh, their role. Mm-hmm. The other piece of it is that psychiatry involves understanding and being uncomfortable with uncertainty, right. which isn't always something that um, we select for or train for, like mm-hmm. we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, calculus isn't uncertain. Right? <laughs> But I also think that um, as a society, perhaps, psychiatrists have to take it from a lot of people. Sure. I very commonly say that even though psychiatrists are demonized as big, bad, privileged, prescribing <laughs> doctors, we're also um, within the house of medicine um, stigmatized because of our sure. psychosocial expertise. Right. Yeah. So we exist within these different worlds where we're often having experiences of being othered or marginalized. Mm -hmm. And when students see that in the environment that they work in, that doesn't make them as excited as possible. Yeah, why would I voluntarily want to be marginalized? Yeah, Yeah, and (laughs) and students ask me that all the time. They'll say, how do you deal with that? Mm. I've really noticed that. I'm really Mm. worried about that. Mm. But my response to them is, it's one thing to be worried about it. I would say I try to leverage it as a superpower. If I know what it's like to be marginalized, that's going to help me uh, appreciate what my patients go through. Oh, interesting. Because yeah. guess what? They're marginalized too. Right, right. So I think that that dual identity, that experience of vulnerability is part of what we draw upon or can draw upon as psychiatrists yeah. to actually be much more compassionate uh, uh, professionals. Yeah. Now, you've spoken um, a, a number of times, including very recently, about the shortage of psychiatrists as well. That's, it, you know, I assume that this stigma is in part responsible for that. Yeah, I think that uh, there's lots of factors the, the biggest factor I'm always very clear about is that we uh, intentionally underfund sure. mental health treatments, particularly in a Canadian context. Mm-hmm. Uh, we underpay psychiatrists compared to other medical specialties. Mm. Uh, but we also, um, in terms of the shortage, we haven't really been taking a serious look about health human resources in mm. most uh, Canadian jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. So if we don't take time to appreciate that, there is not only a shortage of psychiatrists, but that lots of psychiatrists are going to retire in the next mm-hmm. 10 years. Mm-hmm. There's actually going to be an even worse shortage. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., for example, uh, I, I learned last week that uh, child psychiatry is actually kind of equalized because 
the amount of child psychiatrists retiring is pretty much equaled by the amount of child psychiatrists that are graduating mm. from residency. Mm -hmm. So in Canada, the challenge is when I speak up about the shortage, there are lots of people who say, well, maybe we don't need more psychiatrists. Maybe mm. we need more uh, mental health nurses or psychotherapists or psychologists. And I think that speaks back to where we fit as psychiatrists in this system. Mm -hmm. My response is, I agree. I think we all, we need all types of mental health professionals. Mm -hmm. I work with people who work in peer support, nurses, psychology, physiotherapists. I work in teams and we need more of all of us. Mm -hmm. But we can't ignore the role, the important role that psychiatrists play sure. on those teams. Right. So if we want to move the system into the future and address these shortages, we need more of everyone, right. but not that, that shouldn't come at the expense of replacing psychiatrists sure. with others. But there was some research out of CAMH that you're probably familiar with a couple of years ago um, that suggested that tr downtown Toronto in particular has more psychiatrists per capita than anywhere else in Canada, uh, but that access is no better. People are still waiting a year, 18 months uh, to get access to a psychiatrist. What's going on there? Yeah, so I think that's very important research. Um, I think it's coming from uh, a a need we have to un understand the system better, to improve the system, mm -hmm. uh, to make sure access is more equitable. Mm -hmm. There are interpretations of that research, though, I think, that are seen through different lenses okay. that can be problematic. Okay. So, for example, I practice in London, Ontario. It's a decent-sized city. In our context, those realities don't exist. We don't have people um, in private practice doing more longer-term intensive psychotherapy. Okay. So that's that's what's underpinning that is private practice? There, there are a lot of people who work in okay. private practices yeah. who are providing important and needed um, intensive psychotherapy right. for very complex patients. Right. But in other contexts outside of that Toronto bubble, um, we just don't have enough people. Mm. Like in, in London, we don't have enough psychiatrists. We're constantly recruiting. And that trend is paralleled by other places in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And it's even worse in other places in Canada. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the group of psychiatrists that do that type of work, I don't think should necessarily either be framed as a problem in the system sure. because uh, psychiatrists are medical professionals with psychotherapeutic knowledge mm -hmm. and their psychotherapeutic skills are important for a cohort of very complex patients sure. for whom very uh, basic treatments like cognitive behavior therapy aren't really going to work. Right. So we now, shouldn't do one thing at the expense of the other. Sure, we shouldn't. And, and I agree with you there. Now, I would come back to, though, however, to if you have two people uh, who do psychotherapy, um, you know, a, a doctoral level psycholo clinical psychologist who's been trained for eight years in psychotherapy um, or how much – we've talked about this before, but how much training – or how would a psychiatrist training compared to somebody who's spent their entire PhD uh, training in psychotherapy? So the the answer to that question requires, I think, deconstructing a little bit the, the different types of psychotherapy. Right. So whether someone's doing it as part of their doctoral work in psychology or um, it's a basic competency achieved through um, residency training right. for a psychiatrist. There's lots of different psychotherapeutic modalities sure. that have different uh, types of training and supervision. Mm -hmm. So to say someone's trained in psychotherapy, we have to think about what type of that right. therapy is. Yeah. And, so, and at what level. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So for example, the training is very different, um, but it doesn't mean that it isn't complementary. Right. Um, sometimes there are psychologists 
who get very focused training and expertise, for example, in cognitive behavioral therapy. Right. Most of my psychology colleagues are experts in CBT. Everybody, way, everybody's way an expert more in CBT. of an expert than I am, for sure. <laughs> well, it's kind of the, I mean, it's, it's pretty much the only game in town when it comes to psychotherapy, unfortunately, in some ways. But, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they, they have that really deep-seated expertise sure. and have done research and understand it. They're also, uh, most of the time, much more better at psychometric testing mm-hmm. and things like neuropsychiatric assessment than, mm-hmm. than psychiatrists. Uh, most psychiatrists have to be trained at a significant level in some of these basic psychotherapies. That involves both teaching and training mm-hmm. uh, in a classroom or experiential or case-based set- setting, but it also involves longitudinal supervision. Right. Supervision, I would say, is one of the, the core components to being able to be good at psychotherapy or That's certified to be psychotherapist. So I, w- I was just talking about this with somebody um, over dinner the other day, because I do this in both my professional and personal life, <laughs> um, how when I was looking back over my medical records oh. over a six-year period in my adolescence, I saw, looking at the medical records all laid out in front of me, a very clear trend. I became a frequent flyer because I was increasingly not getting my needs met and increasingly trying to get my needs met and escalating uh, over the course of six, seven hospitalizations. Uh, Nobody saw that at the time. I just became, you know, on a case by case, meeting by meeting basis Mm -hmm. uh, that had no connection to the rest of my history. Mm -hmm. So when you actually take that longitudinal, I think I would have really benefited from somebody taking that longitudinal look at the progression of my case uh, Mm -hmm. over the period of various hospitalizations, years, things like that. Um, But I want to come back to the reason why I was asking about the level and and depth of training in psychotherapy. Where do you think uh, a psychiatrist's skills and training, and it probably depends on each psychiatrist, but where do you think in general it's best targeted? Because it seems like you want to use the people for the jobs that they're best at and maybe hive away some of the other stuff that takes up a lot of their time, Mm -hmm. right? So your question is a very controversial question. Is it? It is. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> it is. It speaks to a bit of the exist- existential crisis that I think psychiatry is undergoing as a profession. Mm. And there's varying opinions and perspectives. There's lots of very passionate people who feel very strongly about one thing or the other. Mm. My perspective on that is that we should be experts in being integrative. So by very virtue of our identity as both medical professionals trained in those biomedical paradigms Mm -hmm. and also psychotherapists trained as we should be Mm -hmm. um, in in the psychotherapeutic approaches, we should be a profession that's best used for our skills at integration Mm -hmm. and for seeing the whole person, thinking not only about what's happening with them biologically, but psychologically, socially, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and being able to really through that that biopsychosocial approach, um, help untangle what the problem might be and, and help them move towards mm. healing. Mm-hmm. Now, the challenge is this idea of consultation versus care. Mm. There are lots of people who think psycholo- psychiatrists are a short supply. So all we should do is is provide consultation. Right. And my my perspective on that is pretty clear. I think that that would be a great disservice to society. Mm. Mm-hmm. If all we did was weigh in and see people one time, Right. We would miss out on the, the opportunity to, to build relationships right. and actually follow people through their healing journey and experience some of the reward that comes from sure. working with someone and seeing them succeed and thrive. 
Right. Well, and and uh, that stuff happens in context. Prescribing happens in context, right? If if um, I remember when I was prescribed my first antidepressant, and all antidepressants, as far as I know, all antidepressants have a black box warning against prescribing against kids. Mm-hmm. I was twelve, mm-hmm. <laughs> and nobody yep. nobody checked in. Nobody followed the. It was just a set it and forget it kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, because that person didn't have that kind of training. It's mm-hmm. a small town. They were just doing the consulting type thing. They weren't really following the case. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you need. You need somebody to see those changes. You do. It's it's also really challenging to have people from outside of a profession try to reshape that profession. Mm. I think all of us can appreciate that if you belong to a group that has an identity, it doesn't really help to have outsiders who truly don't understand what you do try mm-hmm. to, to, to change what you do to serve their yeah. purposes. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think um, there's a whole generation of psychiatrists like myself who speak up against some of the coercive underpinnings of our profession sure. and really advocate for more of a recovery-based holistic approach to practice. Yeah. Um, and if we commodify care by just compartmentalizing, or, or think the word you said was like scooping off pieces mm-hmm, mm-hmm. into their constituent parts, I think we miss the idea of being able to be integrative in seeing the whole person. Mm, yeah. Like I work in a pain clinic, just to give you an example. Right. So I work in a pediatric pain program as a psychiatrist. It's one of four programs in Ontario that helps kids and teens with complex pain disorders. Mm. And it includes psychiatry, psychology, anesthesiology, mm. nursing, physiotherapy, pharmacy, and social work. Wow. So, you talk know, about wraparound. Talk about sure, wraparound. Yeah. But what we have is we always say to people in our program, the health system is designed to see you in your parts, mm-hmm. but we were built to see you as a whole. Mm. And that's because pain, like many symptoms, is a complex thing. It's like right. a puzzle. If you try to just see the pieces, it's not going to come together. And if you try to fix it in pieces, it's actually not going to help you. And then you better. result in an opioid crisis, it seems. Exactly. Exactly. So how do you balance that then to, to drill into your, to your work specifically on pain? How do you balance that, right? If somebody has real pain. Uh, and opioids are seem to be the the uh, go-to um, remedy for that. So how do you work around that? So um, the opioid piece is probably a very small part of what we do in our in our. I program. suppose with the pediatric and yeah, just because too. of yeah. the age that we work right. in. But the literature on that fear of prescribing opioids is mm-hmm. also something that um, reflects societal trends mm-hmm. and a hidden culture of training. Mm-hmm. In my training, I remember in my intern year working in an emergency department where the culture really was just give them opioids. Right. Don't spend time. Don't try to figure out what's going on. If that's what they need, then that's what you do. Right. Um, and now the, the pendulum may have swung to another extreme where we're bombarded with uh, the images of the opioid crisis, which right. it is a crisis. But that opioid phobia, uh, I would argue it is going to lead to us under-treating pain. Mm. And in my perspective, people like my patients, uh, particularly women who Mm. suffer from mental illness, are already having people under-treat their pain. So these marginalized and vulnerable patients are going to bear the brunt of that opioid phobia uh, and actually suffer more Mm. because 
we're making people afraid of giving the treatments that are indicated. Right. How much, uh, I don't know if you'll answer this or not, but I like, every now and then I'll slide in a little hot seat question. (laughs) How much sway has the pharmaceutical industry had, both in that opioid crisis, but also in the treating of, of depression and anxiety and antidepressants? You know, how much sway have they had? Well, a lot. <laughs> I think it's part of the problem. Right. I think that the over-medicalization of normal human emotion mm. is in part driven by a profit motive mm. for many companies. Right. And I think that psychiatry as a profession has a lot of uh, reckoning that we need to do about how influenced we are by that industry and mm. profit motive. Mm. I remember, especially in college, too, when I started paying more attention to this, it was, you know, these happen to be, or X, X medication happens to be the best one. So uh, just by coincidence, if you have this problem, you take this medication. And if you have this other problem, oh, it's also this medication. And if you have this other mental health problem, oh, it's also the same medication. Yeah. Coincidence? Well, I don't know. Yeah, I think that that issue of profit really is pervasive in the system. And it's it's interesting, too, because if we look at cannabis now, mm. even though I'm very much uh, I try to keep a very open mind about issues related to decriminalization mm-hmm. and stigma uh, that comes from criminalization, cannabis is being exploited and marketed in ways sure. we've never seen before. In London, there are billboards that say plants, not pills. Right. And there's lots of people who are suffering And there are companies who exploit that suffering for profit. But what the trick is for me here is I get stereotyped as a psychiatrist Mm. as somehow having um, someone putting money in my pocket from industry when that's not me. And frankly, that's not really many people I know. Again, in my generation, in my training, there's a very strict conflict of interest policy. Mm. So there was no contact with reps. Mm-hmm. Um, in my training. Mm-hmm. And we had to fight to change policy in professional organizations to address those issues. Fascinating, yeah. So I've had patients. I remember once I was uh, doing a consultation and it was a parent of a child who likely themselves had their own traumatic experiences mm-hmm. um, with, with pharmacological treatment. And they said, well, I don't trust you right. because all psychiatrists are paid by drug companies mm-hmm. And uh, they pay you to prescribe drugs. Mm. And that's a challenge, right? Because I can appreciate where that's coming from sure. historically, but that's not me. No, and there's always bad apples, of course, right, in, in yeah. any profession. But you don't seem to really hear that quite as much uh, around oncologists or even neurologists or any other profession. Or natural medicine practitioners. Sure, which right? is a whole other thing. Right? Like yeah. there's, there's lots of people sure. who exploit uh, suffering for profit. Yeah. And um, we have to we have to call that out. But at the mm-hmm. same time, I think we have to look beyond stereotypes and take an opportunity to see um, the physicians and nurses and all the professionals mm-hmm. we work with, who they are as human beings mm-hmm. and see beyond our own stereotypes as patients of, of what they might be. Yeah. And, you know, especially as we've seen the the um, financial interests of drug companies start to taper in the mental health sector. I mean, there hasn't really been a lot of new innovation uh, until very recently uh, in in prescribing around mental health um, disorders and psychiatric disorders. A number of the drug, drugs have been going generic. It's just not as profitable. Many 
drug companies weren't even researching it much anymore. Uh, and then along came ketamine <laughs> relatively recently. So what are your thoughts on ketamine as a, as a treatment for severe and persistent depression in particular? I think it's promising. Mm-hmm. There's lots of really amazing um, reports and results. It's still in its early stages. Mm-hmm. And so it will be important to kind of do that rigorous research and protect people against the crash and mm-hmm. the, the short-term nature that we're seeing of some of the initial research. Mm-hmm. It's it's always awesome when we see something promising because I think in mental health research, we haven't really moved the needle mm. um, in the ways we should. Mm. In the past 10 to to 30 years, Mm -hmm. we haven't seen the kinds of scientific revolutions or breakthroughs that perhaps other conditions have seen. Mm -hmm. So whenever Mm -hmm. we see something or or hear about something that has promise and that comes out of creative or innovative thinking, Mm. I think it's really something we should lean into Mm. um, and and look through for potential benefits. Mm. At the end of the day, and and, and I think it's it's great if we can um, pierce uh, that darkness that is unpierceable and, and, you know, until further research um, uh, finds solutions. But at the end of the day, I don't think any medication or or medical intervention that gets discovered is suddenly going to fix you and make you happy. (laughs) Like, I've just never seen it. I don't know. Maybe you have. No, I think you're right. And it speaks to a different way of seeing these issues. Mm. Um, It speaks to appreciating that that suffering is life and life is suffering Mm. and pain is life and pain is, is part of what particularly emotional pain, what a lot of people experience. Um, There are ways of of looking at that and appreciating that you have to combine things that might be attacking your brain and nervous system with ways in which people think and view themselves and their place in the world. So there may be, like, I prescribe a lot of SSRIs. And um, that's because most of what we see in young people is mood and anxiety disorders. Mm -hmm. And when I'm making that recommendation, I'm very open and I say, the goal here is not to get rid of your anxiety because anxiety is a normal alarm that everybody needs to have. It's to turn the volume down so that you can fight it back better. Um, And that fighting it back complements the pharmacological approach. I've I've often told people this combination therapy is is by far more effective than either one individually. They they both work um, psychotherapy and meds, but um, I've often tried to tell people this that yeah the feeling is uncomfortable, but just taking away the discomfort doesn't fix the problem. Right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, if you can't get out of if you're so depressed you can't get out of bed in the morning to go see your psychotherapist, then you know you you, you could probably benefit from some help getting out of bed. But you also have to do the next steps, right? Yeah, you're totally right. It's it's. Uh, ongoing risk and benefit calculation. Mm. And I think it's the same issue when it comes to tapering Mm. and Mm cross-tapering. So oftentimes I'm a little bit perhaps more aggressive in my cross-tapers if I'm switching someone Mm. because I look at it like, first of all, they're suffering. Mm -hmm. And second of all, they're having side effects on top of that suffering. So rather than prolong that, um, of course, I'm going to be informed by the literature and the science, but that person's needs should be driving that taper, not necessarily my inferences or right. projections of that science on their complex life. I'm sure it always depends on uh, on a patient-to-patient basis, but typically how long do you uh, take to, to ramp up, to wait and see if it's working or not? Because antidepressants don't work 
overnight. I think some people expect that they take that first pill and and that they'll get immediately elated by it. And that never happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it depends on the medication I guess you're taking. But uh, And then to taper off and try something else, like you say, or to cross taper into something else. How long does that process usually take in your treatment approach? So it is individualized to, to every case. If mm-hmm. I'm cross tapering, it's I'm, I'm pretty aggressive mm-hmm, about that mm-hmm. because like I said we're looking at something that might help their suffering mm-hmm. uh, it depends on the agent like Prozac has a very long half-life so mm-hmm. I'm going to flesh that out longer mm-hmm. um, usually I'm striving for you know this window of six to eight weeks mm-hmm. uh, give or take mm-hmm. um, if I'm starting someone on an SSRI it's, it's six to eight weeks before I know whether it's helping mm-hmm. and if I'm tapering I want to try to achieve that the, the basics of that taper within that time frame right. again to try to modify it further so six weeks into treatment uh, on a new um, antidepressant, an SSRI, uh, somebody comes to you, says that it's not working, that they're still really uh, depressed. Do you explore if there anything else that could be related to that? Do we know, hey, this medication isn't working or, oh, your parents are getting divorced? <laughs> always, always we explore because, yeah. and I say this to, to students and residents I, that I work with, when you hear that it's because of the medicine, mm. whether it's success or not, it's rarely ever just because of one thing. Right. So you always have to be critically questioning what else is contributing to someone's emotional state, mm-hmm. to their sleep, to their nutrition. A lot of times it's actually sleep and nutrition mm. that's the problem. And I tell people all the time, sleep is the best chemical sure. intervention for your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way that if something's working really well, you have to explore, you know, have they been in therapy? Mm-hmm. What are their life circumstances? For kids, it, what time of year is it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Summer's always not going to be a representative mm-hmm. uh, time for their mental state for the rest of the year. Right. So you have to integrate sort of a mutuality of all those forces when you try to listen and inform any decisions that they're mm-hmm. making. When you have a, a either a, a difficult patient, either in terms of their... Uh, approach to you, uh, the respectfulness toward you, just not as a, necessarily as a doctor, but just as a human, uh, or difficult in terms of you just can't quite crack what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your approach to that? Do you do you see that as this? This might seem like a bit of a misnomer question, but do you see that as their problem? That it's just they're not trying hard enough, or or they're not compliant, uh, or do you see it more as okay, we got to figure out a way to get around that, right? We got to find a different approach. How do you typically approach that? So I think those two different cases actually have two different approaches. Mm. The patient you described as being difficult perhaps because they're more complex or treatments aren't working. Mm-hmm. I see that more as a complex patient mm. than necessarily a difficult patient because mm-hmm. we see a lot of those patients. Mm-hmm. I think those circumstances require continuing to believe in success for that person mm-hmm. and not giving up hope. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I truly believe in, in integrating with other team members. Right. And at times, if I've had patients who I've tried lots of different things with and they fall outside uh, those paradigms, I seek a second opinion right. or I discuss that case with a colleague because I have probably my own blind spots and I often benefit from that discussion right. with peers. And that's always, though, assuming that this is the person who wants help, right? Absolutely. Yeah. What I try not to do is get into the compliance issue right. or even though that's the way our brains work, like we're always going to have those those judgmental tendencies. I don't even like the word compliance. Yeah, it's it's yeah, so it's, pervasive in the healthcare system. It's to me more about respecting their agency, mm. um, but also being honest about my obligations. Mm. So, I mean, something I have to do as a psychiatrist is straddle the balance between 
at times taking people's rights away right. uh, and bringing them involuntarily, sometimes destroying any trust mm -hmm. that they have in people like me or the system, mm -hmm. uh, balanced against how much their illness has totally clouded their judgment. Right. So I don't, I mean, I say it's the hardest part of my job when I have to do that. But at the same time, I really try to take it as seriously as I can. Right. If it's not that extreme, I have to think about different levels of evidence. At one level, yeah, you can do this. It's cool. It's your choice. Mm -hmm. At another level, what you're doing maybe isn't what I would suggest, right. but it's cool. It's your choice. Um, and, and at another level, I think it's thinking every bit of knowledge I have mm. says that this is harmful for you. Mm. And I have an obligation to myself to make sure that that's addressed in this conversation. Mm -hmm. So I have to think about that. Most of the time that's going to be not in a paternalistic way, right. respecting their agency, respecting their choice. But if there are things that are uh, risks to them, um, that uh, there's a sort of obligation both ethically and morally for me to act, I do have to right. have to take that step. Well, I think that's almost a, it's kind of an unpopular aspect of this discussion around involuntary admission that it's, that yes, it has that um, stigma, rightfully so in many ways, of being a doctor knows best, i.e. father knows best <laughs> uh, kind of kind of approach. But then again, it's also no person with more education on this thing legitimately knows scientifically what's best in this situation. And, and maybe you don't, and that's okay to not know. <laughs> what to do, right? So I think th that's not always popular to say is that, no, I actually do know more about this stuff and I've seen this happen a hundred times before and I can tell uh, rely with, with a, uh, enough degree of certainty uh, how this might go. Uh, therefore, we need to take these kinds of actions to keep you safe. Um, you know, I, I think that, like you say, that's, a, that's always a tough uh, uh, balance to strike. Now, how do you how do you intersect with patients or with with parents rather uh, on that kind of discussion? You know, I see parents all the time who want their kid in hospital <laughs> involuntarily, and yeah. the kid doesn't want to be. Right? Yeah. So again, it's part of the the beauty and the challenge of what I get to do is that the parents play a huge role in that individual's context and play a huge role in what happens after the care I provide. Mm -hmm. So when I build alliances with young people, I have to build alliances with their parents. Mm -hmm. Um, I always say I will always be on your kid's side. So I can't truly be completely impartial because mm -hmm. that's often the nature of uh, what a psychiatrist does for their patient. Right. Sure. You're not a judge or, a, a, you know, well, you're not a judge. <laughs> you're, it's your job to not be judgmental, I would yeah. hope. Yeah. But I have to respect parents and I right. have to respect that they know their child and see their child more sure. than I do. I also have to respect that they may or may not disagree with their child about the course of action. Mm. So those conversations really end up being about, you know, for better, for worse, as much as you and I may agree or disagree that your child in our system in Canada has the right to make that decision mm. and that we have to appreciate that forcing them to do something isn't always, and, and I would say actually mostly, isn't effective. Right. Often it has the opposite effect. And, yeah. uh, you know, not many people usually talk about how traumatic a, for example, a suicide attempt is, you know, just because you lived, that doesn't mean you didn't get PTSD from a suicide attempt yeah. or the system itself, you know, being in a, in an environment with a lot of other people who are having a really hard time mm -hmm. on its own can be traumatizing, especially if nobody has ever explained to you what this is or what's going on. Yeah. Or going right. to an emergency department. Emergency alone. Right? Yeah. And all the tests and machines and <laughs> 
sounds that you hear, right? Yeah. Being woken up in the middle of the night by screaming isn't the most friendly thing in the world, yeah. right? Yeah, and with parents, the trickiest part, though, is when a parent is worried about the safety of their child, right. that is so real and so visceral, mm-hmm. and we have to appreciate the trauma that that, that, that parent experiences and the mm-hmm. fear they have. Mm-hmm. If we don't appreciate how serious that is for them, even though we're not worried about that child's risk, yeah. then I don't think we're setting them up for success. Right. But similarly, parents kind of paying their kids to go to, to see therapists right. or forcing their kids to engage in treatment, that actually causes way more harm than good. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I have to frequently draw limits and boundaries to say, this isn't going to be helpful unless you uh, consent Right. to being here and yeah. making sure that there's time to take that informed consent, even to be assessed, which sometimes people gloss over. Right. I, I, and I, I think that that's an important point that, you know, raising a, a kid uh, to recover or, or be the person that you want them to be. Well, maybe they don't want to be that person. Exactly. Heaven forbid. Maybe yeah. they're their own person. Yeah. You have kids. <laughs> yeah, I, do. I have yeah. kids. You know, I have a, I have a nine and an 11 year old. Yeah. And when I'm at home with them, I can't be a psychiatrist, right? right? I can only be a dad and I can only parent them through that intense love right. that I have uh, for them and uh, wish that I have for them to have happiness and health. Right. And, and you know, I think the biggest challenge of that is recognizing that that's not always going to be the case, that they're going to struggle and heaven forbid, yeah, they might suffer. Yeah. And that's going to suck for them just as much as you, yeah. probably you more. Yeah, and, and it's <laughs> it's part of the sort of societal issues that we see with parenting. Right. We don't see um, kids who parents let get lost anymore, right. right? Everybody has a phone. Everybody has a GPS. I was traveling with my kids this summer, and my uh, then eight-year-old said, oh, Baba, I love traveling. And I was like, buddy, what we're doing, this this isn't traveling. Because mm-hmm. he had no idea. We were in Vienna for a conference, nice. this big conference. The first time I visited Vienna, I was trying to save a little bit of money. So I slept on a train and actually took a shower in the Vienna train station. The- <laughs> so I tried to explain that to him. I was like, you know, and then I had to do this and I didn't know I didn't have... You know, I didn't know what the schedule was going to be. Yeah. And then I took a shower in the train station and he goes, ew, that's gross. Why would you ever do that? Right. Our kids now, they they are so we as parents are so conditioned to minimize their suffering mm. at the detriment of their resilience and growth. Mm. And I think the consequences of that, unless we do something, c- could be very uh, negative. Or do you think that the kids kids these days, uh, do you think that they're more or less resilient than they used to be? Or is that generational divide just a myth? I think I always resist generational stereotypes. Mm. So I would never collectively label a uh, younger generation as being one thing versus the other, mm. because I see that as a form of kind of prejudice. Sure. Eld- um, uh, entitled millennials you hear about oh, all the versus I, I boomers. loathe that. Right? I yeah. loathe when we get into that. I, I, the worst is sometimes when I go to a conference and they're like, okay, this is how you work with millennials. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's just like saying, well, this is how you work with brown people. You know, right. it's just as cringeworthy. Yeah. So I don't think it's about being more or less resilient. I think we have to appreciate the the transformation that's happened in society and how, for better or for worse, it is a reality mm. that we can't fight against. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we can't know that reality unless 
we engage authentically with young people to see it through their eyes. Mm. And I, I think we, whether it's ageism or racism or anything else, I think we bring a lot of those biases with us in, in every interaction. Uh, and you've done some research in this respect in terms of implicit bias. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So it came from my lived experience as a psychiatrist, right? I saw mm -hmm. that my patients were being dehumanized in front of my eyes. But the people who were dehumanizing them were good people. Mm. They were my friends. They were people who I knew had high expectations of themselves. Mm -hmm. So I got fascinated with this idea of the difference between intention and action. Mm. And that led me into reading and understanding this idea of implicit bias, mm -hmm. which is a total different way of thinking about prejudice and equity because it emphasizes the fact that you can never actually eliminate it. Mm. So the approach to addressing, for example, bias or stigma is appreciating that you're always going to be trying to be better at it, but you're never going to completely eliminate it. Mm. So you have to somewhat accept that you're inherently flawed and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It's only by balancing the two that you can actually uh, reflect on the things you might need to do differently, mm. change your behavior and help uh, create a better system. Yeah. And actually, I've been coming into a, I don't know, I think of it as a more sophisticated understanding than I used to have of stigma in particular, in that I think it actually is, there's a degree of relativity in that something that's stigmatizing to one person might actually not be all that stigmatizing to somebody else, right? Some, a, a strict biomedical model for one person might be stigmatizing for somebody else who doesn't approach the world that way or their mind that way, right? You're totally right. Because we all perceive stigma through our experiences. Yeah. So whatever, like I said, identities that we belong to, if we encounter someone who we perceive as perhaps not appreciating who we are, mm. um, we can internalize that and it can have consequences. Mm -hmm. But I, I argue, and my research has shown this, all of us are both stigmatizers right. and stigmatized. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a really important distinction between certain approaches which you know, particularly in this call out culture, mm -hmm. just point that finger and say, right. you're oppressing me. Right. Well, that is at times important, but without appreciating and looking in the mirror that we are also oppressing others right. or can or will, we're not going to move the needle because then right. otherwise we're going to burn all our energy into pointing the finger at each other instead of taking time to appreciate that we, what we have in common is that we're just, flawed yeah. and we're working as hard as we can to be better. There's a, a researcher who you're probably familiar with out at uh, Queen's University, Dr. Heather Stewart, an epidemiologist out there. Uh, and I've heard her mention a number of times this uh, divide between attitudes and behaviors, or as you said, just said, I think as, as an equivalency, intention and behavior. Yeah. So I, I see it as kind of the same idea. And this idea that or it reminds me of this idea that um, we've been raising awareness of mental health in earnest now for not all that long. I mean, uh, 10 years, I guess, in a really intensive kind of way, it seems. Um, but it hasn't necessarily led to changes in behavior. Yeah, people are saying, reach out, talk about mental health. It's okay to talk about your feelings, all this stuff. But it hasn't actually necessarily translated into how people act toward one another, it seems. Yeah, Dr. Stewart is exactly right. And I think for me, that's exactly why I went into understanding implicit stigma mm -hmm. and a lot of work that I hope to do in the future is actually looking even further at structural stigma, mm. stigma at a societal level, stigma in policies, in organizations, in how we assess for violence in mm -hmm. hospitals, for example, and how we report uh, physicians who might uh, share with regulators that they have mental illness. Mm -hmm. Because 
we haven't moved the needle the way we should have. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing to be more open and and uh, accepting, which is great that mm. we're better at that. But at the same time, the experiences that most of the people who are suffering from mental illness and addiction, mm-hmm. which is a whole other sure. challenge with yeah. stigma, have are quite blaming and shaming. Mm. So for us to move the needle on stigma, I hope uh, through through some of my work and collaborating with others in the field that we can begin to kind of deconstruct the way we approach not only the way that stigma happens, but how we tackle it and how mm-hmm. we change it to make uh, our health system a lot more equitable. And I think that, you know, certainly speaking truth to power and not being able, not being afraid, especially in a Canadian context, uh, to call out people who may be part of the problem is something that I admire you for, because I notice that you call out the provincial government <laughs> who uh, have not actually been super helpful uh, for mental health in on, in the province of Ontario, for those of you who aren't in, you know, listeners who aren't in Canada. Um, you know, I think that that's important because I cringe when people who I know, who I've worked with in the mental health sector, um, see the same data that I see. Uh, They see the same decisions and the same stigmatizing language coming from the same political leaders. And yet, because healthcare is a provincial jurisdiction and they get their money uh, from the provincial government, the next day they're in a picture shaking hands and smiling with the same people who are biting them, right? And who are damaging the system. I, I was just talking with my producer before you came in about how I have been in those roles before, and I can't do that. Maybe I'm just too principled. I don't know, but I find it so unsavory. It's a tricky balance, yeah. um, and I think it speaks to to how I see myself as an activist. Right. Um, I truly believe mental health is a nonpartisan issue, mm-hmm. and I believe we have to resist the partisanization, if that's even a right. word, or we have to resist making compassion about being one political group versus the other. Right. Well, and and I'll also qualify too that I get that I get why these people do it because they have to because mm-hmm. it is being part of mental health is partisanized mm-hmm. uh, if that if we're going to use that word mm-hmm. um, by political leaders and they demand a certain fealty in order to get the money, I guess. Mm-hmm. And okay. you know, if I was in a leadership position that needed that money to help people, uh, I don't know, I, I guess I can empathize with them. It just still makes me feel dirty. Yeah, well, the problem, too, is that I think we've had successive governments in Ontario and Canada of successive different types of political parties who haven't really truly addressed the the gross underfunding of right. mental health, right? Yeah. So we really have to start there. Mm-hmm. I know lots of times I say, we're underfunded. We can't do more with less. And I get back, well, realignment or yeah. reallocation, or I don't want to keep hearing about underfunding. We're wasting things. Let's be more lean. Yeah. Well, I don't want to do more with less. I want well, to do more with more. <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, I've been in practice for almost a decade and I've gone from sleeping yeah. to being up all night. Yeah. I was on call last night. I'm post-call today. I woke up at uh, about 1.30 a.m. and yeah. 4 a.m. Um, because now the numbers are greater. So wow. how can only one of me possibly do more without that taking a toll on the mental health of people who work in the right. system? Right. So we have to address funding. Yeah, we can do system reform. There's all sorts of cool creative things we could do. But if we're not going to find the most basic treatments that kids and youth and and adults deserve, then what are we going to base those reforms on? And it costs a lot of money. So you can understand why governments who have all sorts of people they need to keep happy to stay in power may not feel like they can 
invest the kind of money that they need to. And it also requires looking at the whole system, which is a problem with all governments is that they sprinkle money on pilot projects here and there or try to look at the system in one part. But if you fix one part of the system, you're just creating problems in the other parts of the system. Yeah. So that's that's the challenge. Mental health reform requires significant sustained investments and it requires a whole of system approach, which is kind of against the way most governments operate. So I'm going to keep fighting and calling governments out until we see the kind of moral courage we need, because when you see the human cost on the other end, that's the imperative to change. Javid, uh, doctor, president, <laughs> all, of the, all of the letters at the end. I am so uh, grateful that you came in uh, post being on call, uh, which I didn't realize. So you should have told me that at the top. <laughs> but I'm so grateful that you came in to have this conversation. Uh, it, it's been fun for me, but also extremely educational, I, I think. And I'm so grateful that you're doing the work that you're doing in the system. Thanks so much. It's been a fantastic opportunity. Thanks for the conversation. All right, that's my conversation with Dr. Javid Sukera. Uh, go check him out on Twitter. Uh, follow some of it, follow all of his advocacy work that he's doing in the in the mental health space. You know, I thought it was fascinating, uh, especially near the end there, uh, the conversation that we're having around implicit bias, around this uh, uh, difference between awareness and and behavior, uh, because I think this is something that we need to pay more attention to as mental health advocates, as or even just everyday people, um, how we stigmatize, because we're always the ones the last ones who say that we're part of the problem and maybe we're not you know the the evildoer who's who's spreading stigma about mental health and mental illness uh, but maybe we do need to change some of our own beliefs and I think that critical analysis of what ourselves uh, of what we ourselves believe is key uh, especially if you're a healthcare provider so I'm so grateful to J- to Javid for coming in uh, a-, a while or after he was on call and being so tired I'm sure uh, to have that conversation with me if you want to hear more conversations that we have uh, trying to explore what the heck it means to be normal, uh, check out some of our episodes. Uh, we were well over 40 by now, I, I think, maybe even more. I'm not sure. You lose track after a while, after all these uh, amazing conversations, especially not sure when this one's going to be <laughs> going to be scheduled. But uh, go check them out on Apple Podcasts. While you're there, uh, subscribe, head down and to the bottom of the feed and leave us a star rating, leave us a review. Uh, that really does uh, matter. It helps a lot to to get the show seen. Uh, we're also everywhere else. So if you don't have Apple Podcasts, that's okay. We're on Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Uh, we upload the videos to YouTube or the audio and the videos to YouTube. So you can find So-Called Normal just about anywhere. Go subscribe and, and uh, share with your friends. If you want to learn more about me and what I do, as well as the podcast and when the new episodes come out on Mondays, you can follow me on social media too. I'm at Mark Hennick, at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, everywhere else. Uh, and you can also get me on my website, markhennick.com, M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K.com. I think that's it for now. We'll talk to you next Monday. I'm Mark Hennick, and this has been So-Called Normal. Normal.